Good afternoon, good evening to all of you folks about the country and about the world who have been joining us for some time now. We love you very much. Thank you for joining us. Please feel free to say hello to us if you wish, and we appreciate you joining us. We love you. Um, today we're going to begin navigating our way through probably the deepest waters in sacred scripture that a person could go. The Gospel according to John. Um, and as we do have folks watching and listening throughout the world, please pray for the proclamation of this Gospel here and for the proclamation of this Gospel for everyone who is watching and listening locally and particularly the world over. This is one of the most, I don't want to elevate one book of, of the Bible above another. You should never do that. But folks, this is most certainly one of the most important books of the Bible that you can teach, that you can proclaim. And as the Apostle John himself says, it is bald-faced, boldly evangelistic, as he states in chapter 20. So it's quite an undertaking. Please pray for me in these weeks and months ahead to do justice to this one of the most wonderful books, wonderful books of the Bible. Um, let's pray for just that. Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, ruler of heaven and earth, thank you for your word, for revealing yourself to humanity through your word. Thank you, O God our Father, for sending the second person of the Trinity, your very being, God the Son, by divine plan to perform the work of redemption, to restore the fortunes of lost humanity. Thank you for sending the Holy Spirit, third person of the triune God, after the work of the Son, to apply the work of the Son to the minds and hearts of human beings, to indwell born anew believers, and to guide them, lead them, direct them, and strengthen them through this life's journey to our eternal home, that place where Jesus is preparing a place for us, according to the Gospel of John. May the proclamation of the Gospel of John truly go throughout the world. We are humbled and we are grateful for the nations of the world that we are able to reach in our small, humble way here. And we pray that the Gospel of John will go out to even more nations, to more ethnicities, to more people groups who need to hear the good news of the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, who is God the Son. Bless the proclamation of your word, O sovereign God. May the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God, our one and only hope, our rock and our redeemer, you who are more than hope enough. In the name of King Jesus, the Word made flesh, we pray. Amen. Today is an introduction to the book. We will uh, dedicate uh, this morning to an, uh, what I hope will be, I pray will be, something of an adequate introduction to the Gospel of John. Uh, but I would like to whet your appetite with some of the most magnificent words that have ever been written. The prologue to the Gospel of John. So would you stand with me please? And we will read uh, together the prologue <clears throat> of the greatest story ever told. Gospel of John, the prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus the Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God for them. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. So what we just read are some of the greatest words ever written, ever penned, ever taught, ever proclaimed, God revealing himself through the human author, the Apostle John. Some of the deepest theological water that you will ever sail through in this life. The most magnificent words ever written, revealing the greatest and most profound truths that a human being will ever be confronted with. This is, of course, one of the most well-read, one of the most written about, one of the most quoted, one of the most beloved books of the Bible, the New Testament and the Gospels. Some of the best-known passages in the Bible are here. Some of the best-known truths, teachings of Jesus, themes and events from the life of Jesus, of course, come from the Gospel of John. And untold millions have come to salvation in Jesus Christ by hearing or by reading this book. It is a bold-faced evangelistic work, an evangelistic book. And yet it is a book of the most deep and profound theology for Christians to navigate their way through through the rest of their life and into eternity. John has been said to be, by many, to be the most quote-unquote spiritual or deeply theological of the Gospels, with absolutely no insult whatsoever to the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, called synoptic Gospels because they are a synopsis of the life and ministry of Jesus. John, to a degree, almost stands alone, or aside, or is able to stand by himself, if I may express it that way, from the other Gospels, again, with no insult to the other Gospels whatsoever. John, if you will find and I'm sure everyone here is probably fairly familiar with the Gospel of John already, it is quite different. It's somewhat distinct and different from the other three Gospels in some ways. There are events, there are details, there are teachings of Jesus, there are very intimate and important conversations that are recorded in the Gospel of John that do not appear in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And yet, there is absolutely no contradiction whatsoever between the Gospel of John and the Synoptic Gospels. They harmonize each other perfectly. There's no contradiction. They all beautifully complement one another, 
and together they form the full account of the Christ, or the gospel, the euangelion, the good news concerning the Christ, the Messiah. John's gospel does not begin as the other gospels begin. That's one of the most wonderful things about the gospel of John. It does not begin with the genealogy of Jesus. It does not begin with the announcement of this baby to be born. It does not begin with the birth of Jesus. It does not even begin with the public ministry of Jesus. Where does this gospel begin? In eternity. In the beginning. In eternity past when there was only God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before by divine power and authority and decree, God spoke the universe into being. It begins in the beginning with Christ as God the Son in eternity past before creation. Do you notice what John is inspired to do here? John chapter 1 verse 1 is really something of a restatement of Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. John is also distinctive for all of Jesus' great I am sayings. I can't wait to get to those. Jesus' distinct teachings referring to himself as the I am. Therefore, I am the bread of life. I am the true vine. I am the sheep gate. I am the resurrection and the life. In Jesus' great I am sayings, he is telling us that he is the great I am who revealed himself to Moses and ancient Israel in the time of the Exodus. He is the great I am in the flesh, as promised, as prophesied, from Genesis chapter 3. And each of these great I am sayings tells us something very profound about the character, the nature of God himself, and about the Messiah, who is not only human but divine, the Son of God, who is God the Son, his work, his person and his work, his place in the divine plan for this world and for all that is in it. By the by, one of the good reasons to go through the Gospel of John is, of course, Christians are constantly challenged with the deity of Christ. Not only His full humanity, but His deity. John, out of the four Gospels, is probably the strongest in teaching and proclaiming the full truth of the full deity of Jesus the Christ as God the Son in the flesh. A little few words about the author. Who is the author? You've always heard... The Apostle John, one of the sons of Zebedee, you are correct. From the earth, and by the by, with liberal scholars, that's being challenged, of course. And of course, it's all, their arguments are all based on straw man arguments in the end. I, I'm going to be so terribly frustrated in preaching through this book on Sunday mornings because of the time. You know how much I love Tuesday nights. And you know, Tuesday nights gives us probably a little more time and a little more, more liberty to take our time and to dig deeper. And uh, I almost wish we were going through the Gospel of John on Tuesday, but there's, there's, there's so much, so, so much here. From the earliest days of the early church, from early church history, there was never any challenge or any doubt whatsoever about the authorship of this book that the Apostle John, one of the original twelve disciples, was the author. Now it's interesting, John does not explicitly name himself as the author in the text, if you care to notice. But there is much internal evidence that John is the author. By internal evidence, I mean evidence within the Gospel itself. And perhaps, uh, let me include some evidence from the New Testament. External evidence would be uh, the, the testimony or witness of history, church history, Christian history in particular. But there's more than enough internal evidence to suggest and prove, I, I think conclusively, that, that John was the author. Uh, tradition has it, 
and it's more than a distinct possibility that John was the youngest, or he was one of the youngest of the original uh, 12 apostles. Uh, the reason for that is John lived the longest. All of the 12 apostles, we believe, by church tradition and history, they were all martyred. They were all put to death. John is probably the only one, so we believe, who died of natural causes. And it is highly probable, I've told you this before, if you remember from when we studied John's three letters, John lived into his 90s. In fact, some tr tr church traditions suggest that he may have actually lived to see the turn of the first to the second century, lived to be about 100 years old. That would have been absolutely an extraordinary human anomaly for someone to live to that advanced age in the first century A.D. Uh, but we believe if, if you date the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus from 30 to 33 A.D., scholars argue for one of those two dates. And if he died in his 90s, perhaps seeing the end of the first century A.D., then John probably was in his late teens or his early 20s at the time of Jesus' life and ministry. Uh, he's believed to have lived in his 90s, reached his 100th birthday. That's pretty extraordinary now. You can imagine what it would have been in the ancient world, where some historians tell us that perhaps about 50% of the population didn't live to see 50 years of age, or at times 50% of the children born didn't live to see their 6th to their 10th birthday. John, being of such an, an, an advanced old age, he would have been revered in that culture, not only by the Christians, but by the pagans, simply by virtue of the fact of his age and thereby presumed extraordinary experience. The internal evidence suggests, of course, that the gospel was most certainly written by a Jewish man, a man who was familiar with Koine Greek, probably to some degree, as well as he, uh, Hebrew or Aramaic. He was certainly a native of Galilee and Palestine. He had to be absolutely for certain an eyewitness to the life and ministry of Jesus. He was a man who was certainly one of the original 12 disciples. He had very intimate knowledge of Jesus and even some of the primate conversations that Jesus had with numerous persons. The Gospel of John, it's interesting, he only refers to himself as an eyewitness to Jesus in this Gospel, and he refers to himself as who? You remember? The disciple who Jesus loved. The disciple who Jesus loved. Chapter 13, verse 23. Chapter 19, verse 26. It was always from earliest church history, an accepted fact. John, the son of Zebedee, the son of thunder, if you remember his nickname, that Jesus himself gave him. He was the author. This also comes from, the, let me give you just one instance of early church history. Uh, Eusebius, Polycarp, Papias, in particular Polycarp. If you don't know of the early Christian martyr Polycarp, look him up and read his biography. Read his, read his witness and testimony. It's, it's a wonderful read. You'll be the better for it. He was a very important early church father and an early church leader. He's also one of the most important and influential of the early church martyrs to die for the faith under Roman tyranny. And Polycarp actually knew John. He was a disciple of John. He was converted under John's ministry. And he maintained, and others, for the rest of his life and theirs, his close associates, that John was most certainly the author of this gospel. And they learned from John's knee before he died. Date and place of the writing of the gospel. Um, we can't be absolutely precise as to the date 
when John wrote this letter. There's about a 50-year window where it was possible that John in his older years, his middle age or even elderly years, wrote the gospel. So we can't be absolutely precise by the evidence that we have at this time. Um, it's commonly believed that John was the last of the Gospels to be written. That probably is true. Although we do believe that maybe there's a possibility that it wasn't. Uh, some conservative evangelical scholars are now proposing that John may have written his Gospel earlier than what we originally thought. In fact, some other scholars are believing that John very well may have wrote, written the book of Revelation and his three letters earlier than what we originally had believed for some generations. Uh, this letter could have been written anywhere from about A.D. 55 to A.D. 90 or 95, from John's middle age to his elderly years. Um, again, some scholars are beginning to propose he wrote it a little bit earlier than we originally thought, which is very, very interesting and will add some nuances to the interpretation of his book and his letters. Uh, others believe the Gospel was written a little later, somewhere probably between A.D. 70 and A.D. 90 to 100. Remember that date, A.D. 70. That is going to change history. That was truly the end of the Old Covenant era and um, a new manifestation of the New Covenant era, the New Covenant era of the Messiah, the church in this world. The year 70 was the date when the Roman Empire destroyed the city of Jerusalem, scattered the Jewish nation, and destroyed the Jewish temple. And we cannot be more precise based on evidence at this time. However... John had to have been a very seasoned veteran theologian and evangelist by the time that he was inspired to write this letter. And we believe that one of the reasons why he was inspired to write the letter is that he knew the other Gospels. He, he had them. He read them. He taught them. And so he was inspired by the Spirit to write different material than what appeared in Matthew, Mark, and Luke presuming that they were written earlier. Purpose of the gospel, to whom or for whom, for whom, let me slow down. The purpose of the gospel, to whom or for whom was the gospel written, pardon me. The gospel is a gospel, euangelion in the original Greek. That is the word by which we come by gospel or good news. Euangelion was originally good news from the battlefront. In Greco-Roman literature, this was often applied to the good news that a courier would give when they came back from the battleground, wherever that battlefront was, to give good news of an important victory that had been won. This is the good news of the greatest victory that has ever been won, the victory won by God the Son in His first advent. Thereby, the apostolic writers were inspired to use this word, good news, gospel euangelion. It is a bald-faced evangelistic work. And John the Apostle tells us that. Oddly, he tells us that towards the end of the book. Go to chapter 20. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Towards the end of the book, oddly enough, he gives you the very purpose of the book. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. Here it is. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. 
Also, this gospel was written for very deep truth theology concerning the person and work of God. You find the Trinity in this book. But in specifically, he teaches the truth of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, and his work. So this book was written to evangelize, but it was also uh, written to teach very deep truth to all Christians, to people who already were Christian believers. And the fourth gospel doesn't say specifically where John wrote it, although you might be... Uh, well, we just finished the book of what? Ephesians. Tradition has it that John wrote this gospel in the city of Ephesus. Much of his adult life and his senior life was lived in the city of Ephesus. Uh, some folks have suggested Antioch in Syria, Alexandria in Egypt maybe, back in Palestine. But probably the traditional belief is that John wrote this gospel while I was living in Ephesus. And this is supported by the early church fathers. Most of them said John was living and working and ministering in Ephesus when he wrote the gospel. Let me give you something from the English Standard Version Study Bible, which gives you a... Please get that study Bible <laughs> and study along. Uh, it, absolutely magnificent information and study notes in the study Bible on the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John was written by the Apostle John, the son of Zebedee, a Palestinian Jew, and a member of Jesus' inner apostolic circle during his earthly ministry. John's original audience consisted of both Jews and Gentiles living in the larger or greater Greco-Roman world in Ephesus and beyond towards the close of the first century A.D. John frequently, this you will find this interesting as we go through the book, he explains Jewish things for non-Jewish people. He frequently explains Jewish customs and Palestinian geography. He also translates Aramaic terms into Greek showing thereby an awareness of all of his non-Jewish readers who are going to be reading this or hearing this. He also presents Jesus as the Word made flesh against the backdrop of Greek thought. And more upon that, when we actually study the, the text, he is confronting Greco-Roman religious thought and he is confronting Jewish religious thought head on in describing Jesus as this Logos, who is en arche, in the beginning, who was with God and who was was God. Very important. But John also shows awareness of Jewish readers as he demonstrates Jesus is this prophesied Jewish Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament themes. He is the Son of God sent from the Father to reveal the one and only true living God and the one and the only one who can provide eternal life and true redemption for humanity. The purpose statement that we just read, chapter 20, 30, and 31, makes it appear that John wrote, obviously, with evangelistic intent. However, the depth of his teaching in this book shows he, he not only wants readers to come to initial saving faith in Jesus, but he wants them to grow into a very rich and very well-informed faith. John's central contention is that Jesus is God. He is the Messiah, but the Messiah is also divine, and that by believing in Him, people may have eternal life and know really know the one true God. To this end or this purpose, he marshals evidence of selected messianic signs. More upon that shortly. He calls Jesus miracles. These events are signs. They're signs that point to something or point to God, point to the true identity of the Messiah. These witnesses include the Bible, the Old Testament Scriptures, John the Baptizer, Jesus Himself, God the Father Himself, 
Jesus works, the things that Jesus does, the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, and, of course, John himself. Now, we've mentioned these great I Am sayings of Jesus, which announce the truth of Jesus' deity and, of course, teach us something about his work. Not only who he is, but his character, the very nature and character of God. And what he is, the great I am in the flesh, has come to do, or has come to reveal truth to us about God. These are, of course, some of the most important truth sayings about Jesus in the gospel, well, frankly, in the New Testament, the entire Bible. These are Jesus' own words, mind you. These are Jesus' own words concerning he himself. Let me go through these great I am, am sayings, encapsulate them for you. They are one, I am the bread of life. Now more upon this when we actually unpack the text. But in the original Greek, Jesus says, ego eimi, in the original Greek. And the Greek reader would, it would be rather odd, rather peculiar to him, because it sounds repetitious. Ego eimi could literally be translated as, I am, I am the bread of life and all the others. Does that sound familiar? I am the I am. I am that I am. That's precisely what he is saying. I am the I am, therefore I am the bread of life. The one who came down from heaven, given by the Father to give life to humanity. I am the light of the world, the one and the only one who truly leads humanity to life, eternal life, in the light, the truth of God. I am the door, or the sheep gate, through which, speaking of his people metaphorically as sheep, his sheep, his people, enter in by way of him, and there they find rest and their true safety. I am the good shepherd. Folks, this is a theme through the entire Bible. God the Almighty as the good shepherd. When Jesus shows up and says, I am the good shepherd, to a Jew that would be a bald-faced proclamation of being God himself, the God who calls himself the shepherd of his people from the Old Testament. He is the good shepherd who lays down his very life for his sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. That is, he is the one who is the very source of resurrection or life after death or life beyond the grave. He is eternal life. And he is the one by whose voice and the power will bring the dead back to life at the conclusion of all history. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The one and only true revealer of God. The one true living God. The one and only way or the one and only route to God. And to true reality, ultimate reality. Eternal life in God. I am the true vine. Je wonderful metaphor. Jesus is the vine. His people are outgrowing branches. He is the one who truly produces fruit or good work pleasing to God. He is the very source of life to his people, those branches, and his people draw their life from him. John is also in, inspired to teach a deep spiritual truths or themes by using sharp literary contrasts. As a very gifted writer, we'll be going, and I hope I will be faithful to bring to your attention all of these contrasts. Some of them are subtle. He uses light and darkness. It's not just physical light and darkness, daylight and night. But he will use daylight and night to teach a spiritual truth. Light and darkness, spiritual death, spiritual light or life. He will speak of love and hatred. Love for God, 
or hatred. He will teach us that which is from above, that which is from God, as opposed or against that which is below, of evil, sinful humanity, or the evil one. He will also teach us concerning life and death, and not merely physical or mortal life and death, but more importantly, spiritual life and death. And of course, truth, God's truth, He who is truth, as opposed to lies, deceit, falsehood. It's an important theme in this book. John also proclaims signs, and the Greek is semeon. And it's interesting, he calls these miracles, these events, these miraculous events that Jesus brings about, that he performs. Well, to John, they're signs. They're semeon. It's an actual event. It actually happened. But the event in and of itself is a sign, is a signpost, which points to something, which announces the true identity of Jesus as Messiah, the Messiah who is divine, and his work, what he came to do in his first advent. And these are the signs that we'll study and encounter. And by the way, there's more here than meets the eye at a surface or cursory reading. And all of these great I am sayings and in all of these signs. One, changing water into wine. Oh, there's definitely more there than what most people think. Healing a public official's son. Healing a badly disabled man at a public pool, and one that has religious significance at that for the Jewish people. Feeding over 5,000 people. By the way, the feeding of the 5,000 is one of the miracles that you will find in all four of the Gospels. Feeding over 5,000 people with a comparatively minuscule amount of food, proving himself to be what? The creator. The creator who is provider. Many of these miracles are actually an act of creation proving that he was the one in the beginning who is responsible for everything that exists, as John told us in the prologue. Of course, walking on water, commanding the forces of nature. Who can do that but God himself? Healing a man born blind. Now, Craig Keener is a good Bible commentary. He's one of those wonderful Bible commentators that throws a lot of history into it, or the culture of the time. And he claims that absolutely nowhere in the history of antiquity, absolutely nowhere in the history of the world, was there ever a miracle worker who claimed to be able to completely heal or restore a person with this kind of disability from the time they entered this world from their mother's womb. Born this way. And of course, raising his dear friend Lazarus from death itself proving that he has the power of life and death in his spoken voice and in his hand. Now, some wish to include, and some, uh, the greatest sign of all is being the resurrection. Many theologians believe that we should put the resurrection by itself in a camp all by itself. That's more than a distinct possibility. But other theologians like to say, well, no, this is one of the signs. We should include this in the signs. The resurrection of Jesus himself from the dead, the conqueror, of all hell and death, revealing his identity, obviously, as God the Son. So the Gospel of John, how many people in here love the Gospel of John? I thought so. Oh, you don't. Well, you're going to. And there's thousands of people out there who love the Gospel of John. It is a dearly loved book. And one of the reasons why folks love it, and I think you will agree, is that we have some of the most important some of the most intimate and personal conversations between Jesus and other people in this gospel. 
Some of the most important conversations ever had in public or private are all faithfully recorded in the Gospel of John. And they are not found in the other Gospels, interestingly enough. And how does John get this information? From Jesus himself. I believe much of this information from John's Gospel was given to John by the resurrected Jesus in that 40-day period before his ascension. And John never forgot. And the rest came to him years later by the Spirit of Christ himself the Holy Spirit of God, as he was under divine inspiration. But what about that conversation with a man named Nicodemus in chapter 3? What about that conversation with that Samaritan woman? And Samaria, the lady at the well, we traditionally call her. By the way, I don't know if you know this, but we have more of the conversation between the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and Jesus at Jesus' trial than in any of the other four Gospels. That is a very interesting conversation indeed. And actually, it's Pilate who's on trial, not Jesus. Pilate and all of the other tyrants of the world who will ever be. Very interesting conversation indeed. There's also certain teachings of Jesus that's not found in the other Gospels, of course. And uh, you may ask, well... But there are teachings and events and parables of Jesus, especially those parables that we all love, that are found in the other Gospels that John omits. Why does he omit that? Well, it was likely, again, his was the last Gospel written. That material was already written. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write something different. Other information about Jesus' life and ministry that the other Gospels didn't have. And, of course, there's similarities that we'll discuss and that we'll unpack, as well as the differences when we actually work our way through the text of the book. Now let me mention some of the key spiritual themes or theological truths which are in, in and of themselves proclamations that we're pro proclaiming this day for ourselves and for the world at large. Key spiritual and theological themes of John, some of the most important of the entire divine library that are found in this gospel. One, again, one of the major battles of our time. The full divinity as well as the full humanity of Jesus of Nazareth. If you ever want a book in the Bible to take people to, to prove to them that Jesus is the Son of God, who is God the Son, this is the book. I've told you this anecdote before, but these things do matter. Shortly after I came up here, and thank God I was really being introduced to biblical Greek, God will make things happen. I was put in the path of a lady who was, I uh, believe, Jehovah's Witness, who denied the deity of Jesus. And she tried to deny the G deity of Jesus from the Greek of the prologue of the Gospel of John. And I stopped that poor woman dead in her tracks, and I said, Ma'am, the entire point, the entire theme in the original language of the prologue of the Gospel of John is that Jesus Christ is God the Almighty, the second person of the Trinity, the one true living God in the flesh. That's the whole point to that prologue. And Arche in Halogos, and I went on to explain it. And she realized, oh, I'm in over my head. Somebody who really does know that biblical language. And I said, ma'am, I don't mean to insult you. But wherever you receive that information that the prologue of John denies the deity of Jesus, you have been sadly deceived. Someone is lying to you or speaking to you out of complete ignorance. In the original language and in any language that it's translated into, 
if it's faithful to the original Greek. The entire point is that Jesus Christ is divine. The greatest and ultimate manifestation of God to humanity. That's the entire point. He is the eternal Son, the second person of the triune God, the Word made flesh, the long-promised anointed one, promised from shortly after humanity rebelled against God and the dawn of creation. Number two, as the eternal God, He existed before the creation of the world, therefore He is the creator of the world, God the Father's agent in creation. Number three, Jesus is the Old Testament Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Abraham, the Son of David, the seed of the woman, the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament prophecies. Five, Jesus is the great I Am who revealed Himself to the prophet Moses in the burning bush in the days of the Exodus. Six, Jesus the Son sent by the Father, He is the one who truly reveals the Father and reflects the Father. Remember what Jesus says to His disciples? When you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. I and the Father are one. One in nature, one in essence, one in being. Another theme. Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament Israel itself. Everything that Israel was supposed to be, Jesus was. Everything that Israel was supposed to do and failed to do, Jesus did. Everything that Israel was supposed to be in this world and failed to be, Jesus was and is successfully. He fulfills all of the Old Testament imagery, all of the Old Testament festivals, institutions, even the temple itself. When Jesus arrived in the flesh in this world, He is the real temple in this world, not Herod's temple that took a generation to build. Can you see how excited I get about this book? Jesus is the one and only true source and giver of eternal life. That bumper sticker coexist is a lie. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, according to Jesus. Gospel of John, chapter 14. Another theme, those recorded miracles and conversations and teachings and events do show Jesus' true identity as God and Messiah. Number 10, the witnesses in this gospel who testified to who really Jesus is, the Messiah, who is God. He is a visitation from God and God the Son incarnate. Another theme, the Trinity. Out of all of the four Gospels, you probably find more teaching about the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, and God as a triune being in the Gospel of John. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all mentioned distinct, and yet all are taught as one, one being, totally united, not only in their person, but totally united in their work of revelation, revealing God to humanity and redeeming humanity. Another theme. Jesus' sacrificial death is the one and only very true basis of human salvation. There is no other way. No other prophet, no other religion, no other worldview, no other philosophy. Jesus' sacrificial atoning death is the one and only basis for human salvation. To be reunited to the one and only Creator, Redeemer, God. No good works will get you there or accomplish that in any way, shape, or form whatsoever. No do-gooderism, no social gospel, no justice warrior this or that, no political this or that, no other philosophy, none. Only He who is the way, the truth, and the life. Salvation 
is obtained only by saving faith, true, genuine, saving faith in Jesus alone as the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Another theme, Christ's people, His sheep. All believers can and should experience the blessings and the benefits of their salvation in this life as well as in the next. You should be experiencing some of the blessings and benefits of salvation and eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord in this life in the here and now on your way to eternity, your ultimate destiny and destination. Another theme, believers in Jesus Christ are called by God. Now this is going to rankle some folks. The complete and total sovereignty of God and human salvation is proclaimed in this book. And yet human responsibility is also proclaimed in this book. And they are not contradictory. They are compatible. You are called by God if you come to God. And I can hear folks saying right now in some measure of pride, but I made the right decision. I chose Him. You chose Him because He first chose you. And you chose Him because He gave you the ability to choose right in the first place. Believers in Jesus Christ are called by God and called by God to carry on with Jesus' mission in this world until He comes back. That mission is to spread His gospel, proclaim His name, His good news, and establish His church and His kingdom in this world until His return. And number 17, well, as I was writing my notes, it ended up being number 17. This is interesting. The cross and the empty tomb. Everything in this book is driving towards that cross, is driving towards that fateful Passover, is driving towards that empty tomb in that garden. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but fully one-third of the Gospel of John is devoted to the last week of Jesus' life. Fully one-third of the book is all about the Last Supper, Gethsemane, the cross and the empty tomb, and the 40-day period after His resurrection. 18. Lest we forget, and we should not forget, the person and work of God the Holy Spirit is powerfully taught in this gospel and from the words of Jesus Himself. The third person of the Trinity, in a bold and wonderful new way for human history, to be sent on the very coattails of Jesus, so to speak, sent from the Father and the Son into this world to indwell and empower His people, His sheep. And 19, the last theme that we'll be discovering as we work our way through the book, the people of God. Christian believers, metaphorically called sheep, metaphorically called branches of the true vine. Who and what are Christian believers supposed to be? Well, how do they get there? And once they're there, what are they supposed to do? And where do you go from there? Christ's people, believers, sheep, who they are, what they are, how they are to live, what they are to be. Your eternal destiny, your, your real destination in the end. Now theologians, you may or may not have heard this, you're actually, when you're looking at the Gospel of John, you should consider it one book, one Gospel, sure. But many theologians throughout the generations have actually divided John into two books. A book, which is two books, or two halves. Um, break it down this way. Chapters 1 to 12, then chapters 13 to 21, the remainder of the book. Chapters 1 to 12 have often been referred to as the book of the signs. John spends the first half of the book with this book of signs, 
All of these chapters in some way record or are based around Jesus' numerous miracles, these events which are signs pointing to his true identity and his mission. And then, of course, chapters 13 to 21 are the completion of the mission. The remainder of the gospel is a climactic, critical hour of human history. The first advent of the Messiah, performing his redemptive work. And this is, do you know what this is called? Some of you may know. It's often referred to as the book of glory. Since in the last half of the book, Jesus truly is glorified in completing his mission. This is the upper room, Gethsemane, the cross, the resurrection. Jesus fulfills his mission and he is glorified. And in his glorification, in completing his work, who's glorified? The Father. Everything the Son does glorifies the Father as well. Now, your Reformation Study Bible, good study Bible that I recommend, another good study Bible I recommend, gives a really great summation of the theology of John's Gospel. I'll give it to you very quickly, with perhaps a remark or two. It is amazing the truth that John gives you in this book. And in some very, very, what looks at a, a cursory reading or a surface reading, a, a simple event or a simple in that, well, we've heard this miracle about Jesus a thousand times. You need to hear it all over again as if for the first time. And, and dig, dig a little deeper. This is a great encapsulation of John's theology. In the sovereign mercy and grace of God, the salvation of Christian believers can actually be traced back to before the creation of the universe in the eternal purposes of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Those who will, in time, over the course of history, pass from spiritual death to life through faith, already belong to the Father, who by divine plan has given them to the Son, the Son, in turn, voluntarily lays down His life in His mission upon this earth for His people, His sheep. And He secures all of those whom the Father has given to Him, so that not a one of them will be lost. Jesus knows and calls His sheep by name, and when they are called, they will recognize His voice, and they will follow Him. When people do not believe in Jesus, it is because they are not among His sheep, they are of the darkness, of the evil one, and are in rebellion against God. But his sheep are secured for eternal life by his sovereign power. For Jesus states that no one can snatch them out of his hand or out of the Father's hand. From another perspective, such sovereign divine grace is absolutely necessary because no human being, deadened as we are, by our own rebellion and sin, we can neither see nor enter God's kingdom apart from having been, as Jesus says in chapter 3, born again. What is that all about? Born again from anew, from above, by God's Spirit, because of the work of God the Son. No one comes to Christ unless the Father draws them. No one comes to Christ unless the Father draws them. But all whom the Father gives by a plan in eternity past, all whom the Father gives will come to the Son and will be welcomed by the Son everlastingly. God the Holy Spirit 
is not only the author of the new birth of God's children because of the work of the Son, but He is also the ongoing sustainer of their lives. He sustains your very life. He is your life. Just as living water sustained the people of Israel in their wilderness wanderings long ago in the time of the Exodus. After His resurrection from death, Jesus gives His Holy Spirit in a fresh and exciting new way as never before to His people in fulfillment of the prediction of John the Baptist and in fulfillment of Jesus' own promise the night before His crucifixion. It is also true that as Jesus returns to His Father, the Father sends the Spirit in Jesus' name. The Holy Spirit of truth, the third person of the Trinity, comes to reveal the Son more fully than His disciples even had even had been able to perceive during His earthly ministry. And thereby the Spirit glorifies the Son. The Holy Spirit also presses God's convicting indictment of the world. The Holy Spirit of God, let's not forget that. John tells us, He convicts this world of its sin. He confronts this world with its sin and rebellion against the Creator God. By means of the Spirit's indwelling believers, the Son and the Father actually make their residence in believers, not leaving them as orphans in a hostile world, but leading them and guiding them to that place where, as Jesus says in this gospel, I'm going away, and when I go away, I will send another. And while I'm away, all that while I'm going to be preparing a place for you so that where I am, you will be also forever. Most wonderful words ever written, the greatest story ever told, as they say. Welcome to the wonderful world of the Gospel of John. Next week, we will begin in the beginning. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for the fourth Gospel. Thank you for our big brother John and for his work in this world before his passing to the place where Jesus prepared for him. Thank you for his faithfulness to Jesus' mission and to the faithfulness of the Spirit's mission sent by the Father. Thank you for these wonderful inspired words which over 2,000 years have brought probably millions of people to new and eternal life in Jesus. We pray for your blessing upon the teaching and proclamation of this wonderful book. Open our hearts and our minds, each and every one of us, to receive the deep truth of your word, to find our place in your story, and to faithfully, by the help of your spirit, translate these words into action in our lives. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.